I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome to Gardening with the RHS with me, Fiona Davison. And me, Gareth Richards. As a book lover, I'm really looking forward to today's show. We'll be opening up some of our favourite gardening and nature books from the past year. And as head of libraries at the RHS, of course I've been rummaging through the shelves. And I found a very special and odd book from the early 20th century that I'll be sharing with you later. We'll also be travelling around the globe with Jonathan Drury, a documentary filmmaker, plant lover and author whose most recent book is called Around the World in 80 Plants. So much to explore, let's get into it. Back in 2018, Jonathan Drury wrote Around the World in 80 Trees, but this year he treated us all to a follow-up, Around the World in 80 Plants. In his most recent book, he explores the science, history and cultural significance of a huge range of plants. He started by explaining how his interest in the natural world came via his tongue. I first became interested in plants when my parents dragged my brother and me around Kew Gardens when I was about five or six years old. And they told us stories about the plants. And quite often they would take a little piece of a leaf and feed it to us and tell us the story at the time. And some of these were sort of lovely lemony flavours or sort of spicy things. Sometimes they're actually poisonous. And obviously they only give us a small quantity. But uh, I remember my father, he gave me a lick of the latex from an opium poppy. And um, it just made my tongue go ever so slightly numb. But I do remember vividly the effect that had on my primary school teacher when I told her. And I I seem to remember a social worker coming around to talk to my mum about that. So the idea of around the world in 80 trees and now around the world in 80 plants is that there are essentially 80 biographies in each case of plants. Perhaps a nice example of one of the stories in the book is about the lotus. This is Nelumbo nucifera from India. Those blossoms are seen as symbols of purity and, and wealth all over South and Southeast Asia. And there's a reason for that. These plants grow in often in quite murky water. And the leaves, the lotus leaves, they have this sort of nanoscale coating, a bit like that you might find on an expensive anorak, that kind of shrugs off the water. And it has tiny little dimples that prevent the water droplets from spreading out. It means that they stay as globules because of the way that water has this kind of remarkable property of of molecular cohesion, as it's called. So it forms these tiny droplets that all sort of glom together into this big globule that sort of floats around the surface of the leaf 
as the plant sways in the wind. And as it goes, it sweeps up all the sort of fungal spores and dust and detritus and so on, keeping the surface of the leaf squeaky, squeaky clean. And then eventually the, the water droplet just sort of falls off. This property of being absolutely sort of beautifully clean when all around is dirty means that it's, the lotus has become a symbol for purity in Buddhism and in Hinduism. And so the goddess Lakshmi is always depicted holding the lotus blossoms in her hands and seated on a lotus blossom. And she is the goddess of purity as well as of wealth. I mean, I also love the lotus for the fact that almost every part of it is edible and rather good. And I also love it for the fact that the seed pod looks disturbingly like a shower head. It's, it's a really wonderful, wonderful plant. Another plant that I rather like, coffee is an interesting plant. Coffee obviously has caffeine in it, right? And the caffeine is there mostly, we think, in order to deter other plants from germinating nearby. It sort of stops those. It's an allelopathic chemical. But minute amounts of caffeine in flowers, which you get in coffee plants, but also in the citrus plants, actually seem to help bees find their way back to the plants better than if there's no caffeine in it at all. And this is a very surprising thing because you'd think, well, caffeine is actually a bit poisonous to insects. And so it's the last thing you would want to put in the nectar, which is the reward for insects for pollination. But actually just putting a tiny, tiny bit helps those bees to find their way back. So like every student knows, just put loads of caffeine in, in your brain and you'll remember better. One of the other things about coffee that people don't realise is it's a very, very beautiful tree. Low growing, mostly shade growing, with beautiful flowers like jasmine flowers, and they're slightly scented of jasmine and honeysuckle. And they all flower at roughly the same time, all these trees. And it's just wonderful, wonderful sight. It's quite ephemeral, just lasts a couple of days. I think it's very important that we take a, a strong interest in plants. I think perhaps from an evolutionary point of view, people are more inclined to look at animals than they are at plants because animals move faster and could be a threat or a food for us that might run away and therefore we have to react to them. And so there is a kind of plant blindness. But I think that if we don't understand plants and we don't take joy in the plants, then we're much less likely to protect them. And of course, all life depends on plants. It's only plants that can photosynthesize and it's the products of photosynthesis that allow everything else to live. So without plants, we're scuppered. And about 40% of all the plants on the planet, all the plant species, are threatened at the moment, as a result mostly of human activity. So uh, my hope is that by understanding and sort of taking pleasure in plants, we might protect them more. Great to hear from Jonathan Drury. And it's worth adding that his book is illustrated by Lucille Clerk and that the images are really beautiful. 
It is just a really enjoyable read, isn't it? I mean, it really kind of shows that plants influence every part of our lives, you know, from the air we breathe to the food that we eat, the drugs and the medicines that we take, even the clothes we wear. So I was reading the book and I put some post-it notes in to try and, <laughs> to try and you know, pick out little bits. And actually I gave up because the book, it was more post-its than books. There were so many little um, Run out of fascinating, yeah, there was yeah. fascinating little nuggets everywhere. You know, even things like looking at cacti, the Apuntia, the um, prickly pear cactus. And that's been used in human history for thousands of years. You know, it was sacred to the Aztecs, but it nearly ruined Australia in the early 1900s when they introduced it. And it just went absolutely feral and invaded hundreds of thousands of square kilometres of farmland. And, you know, we've used it in this country. Cromwell's army in the Civil War in the 1600s, they dyed their uniforms with cochineal. Yeah, which is made from the bugs that live on prickly pear. And that use has kind of carried on uh, for decades and decades. And they've even been used to colour the early versions of Campari. So it really goes to show that plants are absolutely woven into the fabric of every single part of our lives. And they have been for thousands and thousands of years. And discovering new plants is always exciting. And there's so much we can take from history as well. So Fiona, I know you've been going through the collection at the Lindley Library this year. Yes, I have. I've spent a lot of time, you know, going through the shelves and there's always something catches my eye. And the book that this time's caught my eye is a bit of an odd one. It's got quite a twee name. It's called Flower Name Fancies by Guy Pierre Fauconet. He was um, an artist and an illustrator and a theatre set designer and worked with really famous people like Jean Cocteau but it's anything but twee. It's actually quite dark. Oh, this sounds interesting. Tell us more. (laughs) (laughs) So it was written in 1918 at the end of the First World War, and it's a book of little short poems illustrated with these very odd black and white line drawings by the author. A lot of the illustrations have got, obviously they've got the plants in, but what he's done is he's added little faces to the plants, quite odd The monk's hood has got the faces of creepy little monks. And then there's another one is Solomon's seal, which for some reason he's chosen to illustrate with really weird looking little cherub clutching onto a Solomon's seal and quite macabre dolls dancing around this child. So they're they're beautiful, but just a little bit disturbing. (laughs) (laughs) So the poem on monk's hood or wolfbane reads the hood of a monk in the bane of a wolf which is comforting very in russia for the creature satanic when once in a panic will run all the way into prussia it's got a touch of the almost edward lear kind of rhythmic yes. uh, slight insanity to it it has it has the copy that we've got somebody has had a go at hand coloring it some of the images, which just, again, makes it even more creepy. <laughs> but it's, bizarre, it's yeah. a fascinating book. And it's that thing, again, you were mentioning about how plants are woven into our lives and our storytelling and our art and our folklore. They're so significant to us that they crop up the stories around plants in, in very odd ways, in very odd places. And I think this book really captures that. Fantastic. So beyond the library or the work of people like Jonathan Drury, there are so many other ways people can learn about growing. You've got magazines, podcasts, of course, social media, and even email newsletters, apparently. Absolutely. I recently subscribed to one called Radical. 
that's described as an alternative gardening newsletter. Recent editions have talked about weeds, the need to go peat-free and allotments. And I've really enjoyed it because it's kind of a more philosophical take on gardening, challenging the way that we see it, the way we think about it, the language you use around it. Because I think gardening can be really steeped in tradition and sometimes that's quite comforting, but then sometimes that can be a little bit stifling as well. Mm. So having these fresh and new perspectives, I think, is really valuable. So Gareth, is there anything that has really caught your eye when you've been reading the newsletter? Yeah, there was. There was this piece on weeds, which made me actually think, it kind of turned my head around because I'd spent so long, I wrote a book on weeds last year <laughs> and my head was so full of weeds and the way we talk about them. And it actually made me consider what if we abolished the word weeds and just considered all weeds as plants. Mm. There might be plants in the wrong place, but they are plants, they're not weeds. And that kind of, that melted my brain a bit because <laughs> I'd, I'd been sort of extolling the virtues of weeds, but still calling them weeds. Mm. And then if you just think of them as a plant, you know, a nettle is as valuable as a cyclamen because actually there's a hell of a lot more you can do with a nettle. Why call it a weed at all? And that just, I love that kind of, that little prod, that little challenge to the accepted order of things in my brain. I thought that was really, that was really useful. Having read Sue's newsletter, what do you think are the particular benefits of a newsletter as opposed to other media that you can talk to gardeners through? Well, I think not everyone will necessarily feel catered for, sadly, by mainstream media. And I think it's important that everyone feels included in gardening conversations in a way that's comfortable to them. Mm. Um, and then as they get more comfortable in that space, they will branch out and take in more different kinds of garden media. And I think bringing in new voices is really important. Otherwise, we ossify, we just we just go stale and our audiences will decline. So I think bringing this fresh blood in is is vital. And I think the fact that newsletters, in newsletters you have more freedom, you have more personality and you can kind of be philosophical, but it's in an accessible way. Like I don't think I'd read a book on gardening philosophy, but I'll definitely <laughs> read a gardening newsletter that talked about gardening philosophy. And I think that accessibility really is their strength. We've both been lucky enough to write some books for the RHS. Fiona, I really loved your book, all about the untold stories of the men who shaped Britain's gardens. <laughs> that really took me back. It was like time travel reading your book. I just, <laughs> I was in that moment in Victorian Britain. It was, it was really immersive. I loved it. And of course, yours, Gareth, RHS Weeds, The Beauty and Uses of 50 Vagabond Plants. I really like that phrase, vagabond plants. Sounds mm -hmm. so much more exciting. But how on earth did you go about researching it? It's an absolutely huge topic. I mean, you must have had a lot of fun, though. Oh, it was great. It was a long old process. <laughs> and I, you know, you're looking at everything from books to scientific papers, to social media, to government legislation, to newsletters and mm. blogs and podcasts. And it was just wonderful. I just ended up in this, my living room became this world of weeds. And I just, <laughs> <laughs> I was just surrounded by papers. And I even had to build new bookcases because <laughs> my old Ikea bookcases couldn't handle it. So I got some <laughs> scaffold boards and built these big old bookcases in my living room. The hard thing's knowing when to stop though, isn't it? Because yeah. you can go down little rabbit holes and find yourself that you've just spent a whole afternoon on something that's never going to make it into the book. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. The the weird, bizarre uses of ground elder in Finnish cuisine and things like that. You just... 
You never it, know when that might come in handy, Gareth. It's surprising, <laughs> isn't it? And one kind of fun thing was I always tried to have a piece of the plant in front of me when I was writing. Um, I have a little vase and put whatever weed I was writing in in front of me so I could kind of really get to feel it and kind oh, of... wow. That's kind, kind of, of method writing. Yeah, absolutely. But some, <laughs> some of them weren't, weren't in flower or I just couldn't find. One of the ways I did it, I found this site run by this microscope enthusiast who um, had these incredibly detailed photos of all the different plants taken through microscopes and high magnification. And it just showed these plants in a completely different light. Mm. So, for example, woody nightshade that we know is just a sort of a, a tiny, not particularly attractive looking thing. When you look at it close up, it has this most amazing fluorescent green and purple petals and it has these beautiful patterns around the around the center of the flower that you don't see unless you mm. look really really closely and I was I was so grateful to this random chap in Ontario <laughs> for taking all these amazing photos because I really felt like the plants that I couldn't have in front of me a lot of them I found on his site and I was able to get really kind of up close and personal to them. Which was the weed that you had your view transformed the most you know where you moved from it being a plant that you would have not liked to see in your garden to one where you really think wow actually I need to show some more respect to that plant which one you traveled the most distance with oh I think uh mallow uh-huh because mallow you sort of half notice it in dry places but then you actually look at the way just how much it flowers when you look closely it's every single leaf joint has got bud after bud after bud and it as I was going through, because it's M, I wrote alphabetically. So I saw it in flower in July and I was like, oh no, it's going to be out of flower by the time <laughs> I get round to it. And it just kept going. And I sent the manuscript in in September and it was still going mm. strong. And then looking at the way that people use it in Egypt, it's a winter vegetable. So people will use it as a really good source of winter greens. There are cultivated varieties of it. Yeah, um, It's really good for pollinators. It's full of quite nutritious pollen and nectar. So, yeah, the mallow, this humble sort of wayside weed, just sort of became transformed into this edible flower powerhouse. <laughs> I wonder if one of the reasons why some plants get cold weeds is because they're just too successful. They've yeah. just evolved so well to kind of multiply and flower in certain environments that they become ubiquitous and seen yes. as thugs and weeds. But it's actually just they're really good. Yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> and this is a point I make in the introduction is that it's just, it is a case of familiarity breeds contempt. So in this country, we'll buy an agapanthus in a two litre pot for £15 and treasure mm. it. Whereas in Australia, they're, they're a weed and they will yeah. grow in the middle of motorway reservations and things like that. And, it's, <laughs> and I think we need to take a fresh look at these plants and see what they're doing for the world and what they can do for us. But Fiona, what about your experience of writing? How do you start the process? Well, it's finding a thing, a piece of information or an, a physical archive, you know, letter or, or book, and it's sparking questions. And the process then of answering those questions for myself has in both cases got out of hand and turned into a book. So kind of, yeah, curiosity, really, I would say. And Fiona, how do you think garden writing has changed over time? Wow, that's a big question. So we've got books going back to the first Practical Gardening Manual, which was published in the 1560s, The Profitable Art of Gardening by Thomas Hill. And what you notice more is the continuities rather than the changes. Mm. You know, he's it's a very practical. How do I test my soil? How do I deal with weeds? So these, you know, perennial issues that gardeners face. And so that when 
a garden writer comes along who looks at this age-old topic in a new way, it's really striking when you get a fresh perspective, mm. either that they're coming up with a, as you said before, a new way of thinking and, and just using language differently, or they're bringing a lot of their personality to it. It can be really exciting, but it's rarer than you think. It's mm. rarer than you think. It is. It's quite a skill. And that, that's what excited me about the newsletters that we were talking about earlier. Just that recalibration of the way you think, mm. I think is so, it's such a valuable thing. So talking about new perspectives, any books you've read recently that you'd like to recommend to us? Yes, absolutely. This is a beautiful book called Vegetables, a very simple title by Roger Phillips and Martin Ricks, two really well-respected writers. Mm. So it's how to grow more than 500 vegetables. And I've read a lot of gardening and vegetable books over the years. And sometimes your heart can sink. It can become a bit dry. But this one is just, it's as beautiful as it is informative. And what I really like is the fact that They talk about the vegetables as plants and talk about where they grow wild, as well Mm. as all the different cultivars you can grow in your garden, little nuggets of history and little bits of cooking advice. It's kind of a a smorgasbord. It's not just a dry textbook. And I think it's a really, really good read. So Vegetables, The Definitive Guide for Gardeners by Roger Phillips and Martin Ricks. Yeah, it sounds great. I think it's really helpful if you get a little bit about a plant, the background of it. Yeah. Because it it makes you think, like, why would I want to grow it? Not just how to grow it. Yes. And also seeing a carrot growing wild on a sand dune, you know, by the (laughs) sea gives you the... um, a few clues about what kind of soil they'll like and then mm. actually seeing its beautiful flowers as well makes you think oh maybe I'll leave a couple for mm. the pollinating insects so yeah I thought that was a really lovely and really useful book and another book that I've really loved this year is How to Garden the Low Carbon Way by Sally Nex and the subtitle to that is The Steps You Can Take to Help Combat Climate Change it's a really nice book it's really clear it's really practical and it's really positive because quite often I think it's easy to just feel a bit overwhelmed Mm. by all the bad news the climate crisis and I think putting some positive measures into practice in your own garden is a really really valuable way both for the planet but also for our own well-being and she talks about things every single part of the garden she's worked out how you can make it low carbon avoid emissions everything from creating a low carbon wildflower meadow to making a reclaimed shed to even if you're just going to have a couple of plants in pot how do you do it in a responsible way and I think it's a really it's a really worthwhile quite an important book actually yeah I agree agree and how about you Fiona what have you been reading recently well I've got two books one practical one absolutely not the absolutely not is a book called spirit of place artists writers and the british landscape by Susan Owens it's published by Thames and Hudson came out this year in paperback and it is a really interesting romp through all of British art history, wow, <laughs> right the way, all the subject. way through, but from the perspective of artists looking at landscape, and that's writers, poets, as well as painters. And it's really interesting because it's back to the theme of this podcast, which is new ways of looking at things, giving you new perspectives, because it's really convincing about how influenced we are by artist visions of our landscape, Mm. but how we look at the world around us. And I was really taken by how 
new the art of landscape painting is relatively. Yes. Obviously, landscapes have been in the background of mm -hmm. lots of paintings, but it wasn't until the 17th century when landowners were creating these you know, massive gardens and they wanted a portrait of their mm. garden and their estate that you get landscape painting in this country being a thing. And then the more practical one. Now, this is an American book. We've got it in the library. All else failing, you can borrow it from us if you can't get hold of it. But it's called Tropical Plants and How to Love Them by mm. Marianne Wilburn. Often, I instinctively shy away from books with a gimmick. And this does have a gimmick, but I actually quite liked it. The gimmick is she categorises tropical plants as relationships, basically. You know, what okay. relationship you have with them. So she's got a summer romance for okay. tropical annuals. You know, you bring out and have yeah. summer. A long-term commitment, best friend and the high-maintenance partner. Oh, and so is then, that a Calathea by any chance? Yes, yes, <laughs> and others, and others. And actually, I found that quite helpful because it starts with, like any good relationship guidance, starts with you and what you want from mm. it. And you think about Very what wise. you're now, am I getting yep. what I want out of this relationship? Interesting, And I think yes. that's, you know, quite helpful. And she's also quite clear with you and quite unemotional about if it's not working, it's not you, it's me. It's, yes. you know, you, the plant is not doing what I need yep. it to do. Don't carry on with it, maybe. Mm. Just kind of cut your losses. And I don't know about you, I'm dreadful at that, especially with house plants. Yes. I just can't admit that I cannot grow something. So my house is full of sad, semi-dead plants <laughs> <laughs> where I'm kind of persisting and refusing to admit I do not have the conditions yes. for it. I know that feeling should. well. There's a crispy calathea in yeah. my bathroom oh. that's screaming, yes, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Break up now. Yeah. Come here, my Let me go. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the theme of today's show has been new ways of looking at things, kind of prompted by reading insights from other people, whether it's newsletters or great big fat books or just even listening to somebody witter on in a podcast. I think there's always a time and a place for taking another look and, and thinking again about what you grow and why you grow it and how you do it. Absolutely. And we're going to put all of our recommendations in the show notes. So do take a look if you want to look further into anything we've talked about today. Thanks for listening. And happy reading. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com.
Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.